This is Dylan FM, a freak music club podcast on Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place. This season, we're going deep on Time Out of Mind to celebrate its 25th anniversary. Here's your host, Craig Danielov. There is something special about listening to musicians talk about Dylan. We recently spoke with Robin Hitchcock and Wesley Stace, two songwriters and musicians that have long been known as Dylan fans. I think they clearly showed that as performers, songwriters, and musicians, people have covered Dylan's songs live hundreds of times and do what he does, that they have the insights and ability to share them in ways that are just different from what we hear as authors, fans, or academics. If you haven't heard those episodes, especially the full extended editions, I really recommend them. Today's conversation is with another musician, songwriter, and performer who is a massive Bob Dylan fan. I've seen Jeff Slate open for Ramblin' Jack Elliott. I saw him interview Roger McGuinn at the first Bob Dylan conference in Tulsa a few years ago, and I've seen him do Dylan tribute shows. We had a fantastic conversation about Time Out of Mind that you're about to hear. Jeff has released solo albums, opened for Sheryl Crow. He's a frequent music journalist, and his writing has appeared in Rolling Stone, Esquire, The New Yorker, and many other places. He's also a regular host on Sirius XM. And significant to all of us, Jeff Slate wrote the liner notes for the More Blood, More Tracks edition of the Bootleg series. I asked Jeff to talk about Time Out of Mind, and as you'll hear, he had stories and thoughts that go all the way back to release day in September 1997. He talks about the sound of the album, the risks that that kind of production produced, and much more. And he tells us about how he approaches and appreciates seeing Dylan live. In this recording, you'll hear about half of my conversation with Jeff Slade. It's fantastic, but so is the other half. Please consider becoming a premium member, which gives you the extended version of all of our podcast episodes, plus bonus episodes and video versions of most of our interviews. This conversation, for example, has a great video recording. There's no advertising on our podcasts, and membership is the only way we support the creation of this program. Take a minute and visit freakmusic.club to learn more. We have special pricing that will end after the holidays. You can join right now for as little as $5 a month. But for now, here's our Time Out of Mind talk with Jeff Slate. All right, Jeff. Well, first, thanks for joining us today. Really happy to have you from the far side of Manhattan. Yes, the good side. I'm excited to have you here for a bunch of reasons. Star on your resume is having written liner notes for a bootleg series, which is pretty awesome. And it was your great, is it rolling pod that you were on? The thing that triggered me was you said you had kind of winked at the Dylan office and said, if there's a time out of mind box, I want to write it. And I thought, oh, this guy's got thoughts about time out of mind. I want to hear him. I do. <laughs> I want to hear him. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was funny. The, the first time, you know, when you, if you're on the, the, their radar, you, you sort of get, and you're in New York City, particularly, you get invited in. And so I, I think I had written a review about another self-portrait, maybe. And so I got asked in for coffee, and it was, it was really fun. You know, it's always, you know, it's exciting. As a Dylan fan, people there are amazing. And when I was getting up to leave, I thought, well, I may never see these people ever again. So I said, hey, if you're ever, because it, it was around the time 
of maybe the 20th anniversary or the, no, it would have been 15th anniversary. It was quite a while ago. And I was like, oh, hey, you know, if you ever do time out of mind, I'd love to be the guy. And, you know, whatever I, you know, whatever stupid thing I said, you know, that turned into, they ended up not doing time time out of mind back then, but that turned into sort of a dance over a couple of years that turned into a phone call. I was literally on the bus after parent-teacher conferences at my kid's school, and my phone rang, and they were like, hey, uh, can you be here, you know, before we close, which was, you know, it was like regular office hours, like quarter or five. There was no way I was going to get there by five. And I thought, you know, I'm blowing this. Whatever it is, it sounded urgent. Okay, can you be over here first thing tomorrow? And, you know, told me what it was about. This is long before, you know, the, the public knew what was going on. And it was, it was so exciting. Like that night I couldn't sleep. I had, you know, talk about, I had thoughts about time out of mind. It was like everything I pulled out all the bootlegs and I was like trying, you know, making a playlist and I'm trying, like, I wanted to go in there, have really coherent thoughts. And, you know, it was similar to when I did the Sergeant Pepper project. It was, you know, I wasn't auditioning for it. They'd already decided if I wanted to do it, I could do it. Just to me as like you, as a fan, it's like, how do you get asked to do this kind of thing? You know? So it it was a real honor and very, very exciting and still is. How were you feeling about things, you know, before world gone wrong, after world gone wrong, what did you expect from Bob in the next 10 years? You know, obviously he'd been in the Wilburys and there was a lot going on in the, in the 10 or so years prior. I saw him in both 95 and 96. I remember 96 being a really good show relative to shows of that era. You know, there's, there's like a, there's a huge difference between, there's a huge difference between 96 and 97. And then there's a huge leap again between say 97 and 99, 2000, you know, I mean, those shows yeah. around. And, and from 90, 90, oh, well, 91 were kind of the, the, the low part of that. 95 was, you know, Europe was incredible. Right. Um, Right. So, yeah, I, I do think the live stuff, you know, the, the going to going to work in 88 and saying, I'm going to figure out live. He had it by then. I agree. I and and I, awesome. I think, too, I think, too, look, I had seen the first time I'd seen Bob with the Heartbreakers in 86. And I was just in the thrall of being in the room with Bob Dylan and also seeing him with the Heartbreakers. And, um, you know, one of the things. It's easy for us to say now, oh, 95 was a good year. 96 was a good year. 2000 was a good year. At the time, the years that we now consider bad years were great fucking years. Because it, for me, as a young musician trying to sort of find his way as a player and a songwriter and in this business, to see Bob Dylan doing his thing, even on nights that we now consider weren't that great, fucking tremendous. You know, I mean, so I, I think it's it's all relative. It's like, you know, I, I, I've I'm not a big fan of like I don't read a lot of Bob Dylan books. I don't obsess over, you know, what cigarettes he was smoking or what clothes he was wearing or who even who he was playing with necessarily. I like to take Bob. And I said this the first time I was I went to the office. I like to take Bob the way he presents himself. So if I go on a particular night and he's good or bad or, you know, 
even phoning it in for that matter, I'm, I try to find the things I can appreciate in what he's trying to accomplish as a performer or an artist that night. And I think if, if you approach him that way, the rewards are sort of exponential because when you get a great night, it, it, it'll completely blow you away, even if you've seen him a couple of hundred times. So I think for me, you know, I saw, I saw him in, in I want to say, 96 in Providence with Jewel, of all things. And she came out and did I Shall Be Released at the end. And, you know, and I remember the guy I was with was pretty indifferent about the show. And I thought it was a great show, you know. And, you know, I've gone back and I've listened to the bootlegs and, it, you know, it's an okay show. But, you know, I think when you're in the room with Bob Dylan, there's a certain magic that you don't get from those bootlegs or even YouTube. You know, back then, you could get really close. You know, I, I remember going to see him in 2000. And I was literally at the lip of the stage in a basketball auditorium at URI. I was less than 10 feet from Bob Dylan, and he played the guitar the whole night, played the harmonica, sang. I could see the lines on his face, the seams on his jacket. I was, like, totally mesmerized. And I learned some, you know, about the way he plays, the way he approaches the songs, the way, you know. So I think, I, I think, okay, so to backtrack and kind of answer your question, given the fact that we had gotten those two acoustic records, which I love because it was so different than what everybody else, certainly his peers were trying to accomplish at that point. They were so contrary. The song choices were contrary, but they were immediate and they were really special if you wanted to spend the time and listen to them. And, you know, I think a lot of them, a lot of people, you know, casual fans, especially got them, put them on, listened to a couple of tracks and just, you know, sent them, got, they went to the CD bin, the used CD bin. And, and I, I really devoured. So when Time Out of Mind came out, I was, you know, the first guy when JNR Music opened downtown, that a temp job down there, when they opened the doors and they were, the guy was literally putting them out, grabbed it, paid for it took it outside, popped it in my CD player, and I didn't go back to work because the first 15 seconds was so magical and so arresting. The voice, the sound, you know, it was not remotely what I expected, but it was also, I knew, you know, right from the first minute or two that the record itself was going to be great. Not just Bob's performances, that the songs were going to be great, but that it was like, a whole other thing that he had yet again was doing something he'd never done. Before. And so, you know, that this was really the beginning of him going back to that, you know, America, you know, that early American music sound. This was him testing the waters with a producer um, to get to that Jack, the next iteration, which was Jack Frost iteration. So I was just like, I went to City Hall Park. And I sat there with my CD player, batteries ran out, I got more batteries, I listened to it again. I was just like, that was it for me that day. I was, you know, I was totally, it was, it was going to be time out of mind for the rest of the day. Wow. That's amazing. And that you remember that, that clearly, but that you, uh, 
you know, that, that experience kind of, you know, opening day. I remember the love and theft day, obviously it was nine 11 and all that more like the opening day. I don't remember too opening day, uh, quite, quite so much myself. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful you know, I start. Think, I think the, for, you know, there's, the, there's also some noodling. Yeah. I, I think for all of us, you have to remember, you know, and, and this is no disrespect to, to Bob Dylan or Sony or anybody, but I think most of us had fairly low expectations for a new Bob Dylan record. You know, I think. Oh, no, that's, this is the point. I think this is what's interesting. Cause if you look at it and I, you know, I do obsess over the details more than you probably, but, um, oh, you know, it was seven years since a new song, you know, and, and the case I, I just made in an earlier version of this podcast, you know, 1977 when street legal came out was not perfection. was not, everyone loved it. was not, you know, and then he, in the born right. nine years, you know, he got, so he had almost 20 years of not, you know, you can do everything right. And so the expectations weren't high. And then this is kind of the, oh, let's turn another corner because we're, you know, doing it differently and back and unexpected and a new sound and, you know, a new voice. And, a- and, and, and I think what's, what's most remarkable about that is he was not, that was a problem that he and his peers had been having, you know, certainly throughout the 80s and, and the early 90s, most of the people that he came up with who were in the, now in their 40s and 50s, were really struggling to find their groove. You know, McCartney had a, a fallow period. George Harrison just went away for a couple of years. You know, it, it took them, each of them, finding a collaborator. You know, McCartney found Elvis Costello. George found Jeff Lynne and the, and the Wilburys later. Um, you know, Fogarty wouldn't... I, I, I was talking to John Fogarty the other day for, for something, and and... You know, I said the first time I saw him was on the zombie tour, which, you know, he wouldn't play CCR songs then. He was playing this kind of weird electronics. I mean, he was in a bad place, both personally and creatively. And yet, for me, it was John Fogarty. Like, it was really cool. I, I kind of dug that he was playing the old tune, right? And it was a good band, and it was, it was a fun show. But, you know, we had, we all wanted somebody like, Paul McCartney to write Veronica or George Harrison to write When We Was Fab or This Is Love. We wanted those guys to succeed. And when they didn't, it was, it kind of hurt. You know, it was, when did Neil do Silver and Gold? Roughly, I think, well, what was that, like 2000, Harvest Moon and Silver and Gold. You know, those, those records were sort of, when he turned the corner to that same, in the same way that Bob did. So I think, you know, we, we'd gone through this long period where he worked with the Heartbreakers, he worked with the Wilburys, he toured with the Dead. Some of those were successful, some of those were not. So we were just kind of, oh, a new Bob Dylan album, cool. So to buy it and have it be competitive with everything, not just his peers, but literally everything else in the charts was, well, I knew it right away. I put it on. I knew from the opening notes that this was, you know, this was a guy who was once again, like with Blood on the Track, as I say in that book, throwing down the gun. Like, you think I'm finished? You think I'm done? No, I got, I got shit to say. So let's talk about that, the sound a little bit, the production and, sure. you know, your, either your initial or, or where you, you know, after all these years, what, you know, what you think of it. Obviously they, you know, it doesn't, it sounds different. The songwriting style is different. The use of old material, both inspiration and quotes. Um, 
but but that's sound, you know, and we, people still don't even know what it is. Um, yeah. What hits you as a, you know, as a recording artist about what they did on that album? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, there was, you know, there, there were there were bands like, you know, I'm thinking like Whiskey Town and Wilco and, and people like that who were trading in that kind of Americana sound. But it was a much more, in my mind, it was a much more refined Americana sound. It was a more CCR Neil Young Americana sound. It wasn't, it was much less, much more Neil Young than the band. And I think, you know, what, what was happening here was, you know, Daniel Lanois, to his credit, you know, sometimes by all accounts against Bob's wishes, um, getting sounds that were baked onto the tape. Like, you know, when they, when they go back and they wanted to remix this, a lot of those things, like the Sly and Robbie session, they're there forever. It's the way they were recorded, you know? Um, and so, you know, he, he wanted to create an atmosphere that was, you couldn't remove from the record. That the songs, the way the band was performing, the way Bob Dylan was singing, the way he was delivering those lyrics was part and parcel to the sound they were hearing in their headphones while they were playing. So if it was swampy or eerie or creepy or, you know, so, you know, out of balance, you know, there were some things were really loud and some things were really soft that don't make sense to a normal recording engineer or producer. But those choices drove I, in my mind, the way forward for the record, you know, in the, in the record. And, and also, you know, we're completely different to, I mean, people say, you know, it's like people talk about the Beatles and how they were doing things first. You can always point to an independent artist who was making records that sounded like time out of mind before time out of mind. But we're talking about an artist who's a, you know, Big bold letters, all capital letters, Bob Dylan, you know, an A-level artist who was really putting something out there that did not sound like anything else that was in the top 10, 40, 50, 200. Um, so it was a really risky thing to do. And I think for him to, um, you know, nothing's the musicianship, you know, the parts aren't really clearly defined. They all kind of blend into each other to create a larger whole. Like you said, you know, he was using, he was writing. It was like when McCartney shifted to writing for Wing. He wasn't writing like Paul McCartney and the Beatles anymore. It's very, very hard as a songwriter to not write the way you know how to write. And yet, Bob, who had taken this, you know, left turn several times over the year. Okay, well, now I'm going to write a country. Now I'm going to write a gospel song. And it's not just like, you know, they're not unsuccessful attempts. These are, this is like a guy who can write one of the greatest gospel songs ever or one of the greatest country songs ever. And so, you know, when he's now approaching this kind of early American Americana sound, um, he's creating or recreating a genre that everybody else is now going to replicate. You know, the, the next Wilco record, the next Billy Bragg record. 
you know, you, you think of any of your favorite sort of Americana sound bands from that era, Yola Tango, you know, everybody started to sound, they're not saying they're Americana, but, you know, that everybody was like, oh, I want some of that. I want, you know, like everybody was aping the Joshua Tree after Daniel Lamois and Brian Eno did that successfully, or after Octung Baby, everybody wanted to, you know, was buying Neu records and, and you know, craft work and that kind of joy division. You know, similarly, after the Wilburys, everybody went back and, you know, rediscovered ELO. Everybody forgotten ELO by, you know, 1988, 89, 90. All of a sudden, George Harrison has a big hit and people were like, oh, those are really well-crafted pop records. There are things I don't like about fairly, but they're really, this guy, he's a great songwriter and producer in his own right. Look what he's doing for these other guys, Tom Petty, George Harrison, the Wilburys. It's like, you know, Roy Orbison. So I think, you know, Bob was doing that. And, and you know, he probably could have done it without Daniel Lanois. But Daniel Lanois was facilitating uh, the mood in my, and this is again, in my mind, he was facilitating the mood he was hearing from those songs when Bob performed them to him as demo. You know, some of those songs, by my understanding, some of those songs were recorded, I think most of them were recorded as perhaps masters or demos with like a regular band in Ronnie Wood. And and how different would they have sounded if they were given a more traditional rock and roll stonesy kind of vibe? You know, they wouldn't have they would have been they're still great songs. But to have that, you know, arresting nature, when just when you drop the needle on the first song, to have everything, everything in my world stop, you know, when, when that, when that's, and Bob, you know, the, the, like you said, it starts off with the noodling and then the band kicks in and then Bob starts to sing and he doesn't sound, I mean, it's obviously Bob Dylan, but he doesn't sound like, it sounds like another worldly Bob Dylan. And and it was like okay, I'm paying attention, and I think that was that was something that was really crucial about Time Out of Mind. Everybody, you know, not that everybody had the same experience as me, but I think everybody stopped and listened to Bob Dylan again in a way they hadn't in a very very long time. Yeah. Did you have a formulation in mind for approaching liner notes for Time Out of Mind, or you just knew you cared about the record? I had a story to tell, which is a lot of what, what we're discussing here, which is my, I think my first impression of that record and my memory of that day are crucial because I think, you know, I think like with, like with Blood on the Tracks, my experience of playing Idiot Wind to a crowd and you know, just being able to remember all the words, people thought it was an achievement. And I remember walking home and feeling like I didn't even come close to doing that song. Just, I think as a musician, my ears probably hear those songs a little bit differently. You know, I mean, the first time you hear anything, you're just a fan listening to a new record. But as you dig into it, and, and you know, it's not just that first 30 seconds, you realize it's, you know, a 60 minutes worth of new Bob Dylan music. 
that's at that every song is at that level even the songs that aren't favorite are at that level um i think you know it, it's something that you continue to listen to and i thought that was where i wanted to start the essay with with you know that moment and that day in the park and that experience with those songs for the very first time and then and really not being able to stop listening to that record for an extended period of time and then how my relationship with it grew over the years and then obviously i would have had to deal with whatever you know whatever is actually in the box set which is you know a whole other company. It's extremely interesting because there are very different early versions, as you know, as you said, there's different versions of every song. But the interesting thing about Lenoir, which I think you referenced in terms of his impact, I mean, it's obviously his sound and you know, him and Mark, had, Mark Howard, the engineer, had a dramatic mm-hmm. impact on it. I think the fact that he was willing to sort of go toe to toe with Bob and push and fight for his opinion. I don't think he won all the fights and Mark shared some stories about that with us but you know he had a major influence on it and and is you know i'm sure responsible i don't know individual sounds and all that but being willing to stand up to bob who's a guy that you know you got to imagine in life doesn't get that a whole lot so he kind of fought for it to be that way and i mean i think we do definitely have to give him you know give him credit he was his last producer since right 25 years no other producers do you think bob benefits or loses something you think not having someone in the room to add a new direction or push something hurts. So how do you feel about the Jack Frost product? Look, he's, he's made now half a dozen, eight records since then that, that are great records, you know, that stand up, stand up with his best work. Some as a producer, more successful than others. He's sort of seems until rough and rowdy ways in particular, it seemed to me to be refining a sound, you know, that love and theft led to a little edgier sound with together through life. And then modern times was much more, I think what he was trying to achieve, you know, it's like, it seemed to be each one was a little bit different, but also the next rung on the ladder as, as, as a producer, you know, wearing his producer hat, the songs are a whole other conversation. You know, I prefer time out of mind to love and theft i know most people do not i've had this conversation many many times with dylan heads and dylanologists and look i think i think love and theft is a beautiful sounding record incredibly well produced and incredibly well recorded from an engineering standpoint and the songs are fantastic but to me it's bob dylan doing the best version of bob dylan at that moment in time. And I think what for me was a little bit, you know, had the little bit of special sauce on Time Out of Mind was it was it was Bob Dylan being a little bit bigger than even Bob Dylan. You know, because those songs those songs weren't just Bob Dylan's songs. They were, you know, people have a lot of people have covered those songs on Time Out of Mind. Because they're great songs that anybody can play. You don't have to have that swampy sound. And I, I so let me backtrack. That's all we have time for on this episode, but the discussion continues for another 40 minutes, and it's all great. 
it's the beginning of Bluesy Bob. But if you get an eight-minute Neil Young song, two-thirds of it is solo. At the end of the day, these are just pop songs. It's sort of the blind Willie McTell of Time Out of Mind. It's like, why would you not put that on there? It put him back into the critical and artistic consciousness in a way that I think, whether he expected or not, he's certainly appreciative of. It was explosive live. Just, you know, completely blew me away when I saw him on that tour. Please consider becoming a Plus or Premium member to hear the rest as well as dramatically extended versions of our talks with Robin Hitchcock, Wesley Stace, Time Out of Mind engineer Mark Howard, author Michael Gray, and many others. Visit freakmusic.club to learn more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast. It really helps. For bonus episodes and more, become a member at freakmusic.club join. And you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at FMC underscore Dylan. Thanks for listening.